You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Welcome to another edition of Beyond the Headlines. With us today is retired police officer John Bennett, but I'll let him introduce himself. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I appreciate it. Tell us a little bit about yourself, John, before we get to (laughs) all of this heavy stuff. Yeah, that could take a while. Briefly, uh, retired from the Detroit Police Department in 2016. And at this point, just kind of enjoying my retirement and uh, enjoying doing nothing. So and still a city of Detroit resident, concerned citizen, all that happy stuff. But, uh, you know, not trying to do too much right now. Enjoying doing nothing. What is enjoying doing nothing? Um, That's just doing nothing. If I'm not traveling, I'm at home. So this year, well, last year, end of last year, I didn't travel too much. But when I first retired, I traveled a lot. So, but right now I'm just, uh, you know, spend my days either in the gym or uh, keeping up with, you know, local goings on. But other than that, uh, I'm just kind of taking it easy. Sounds good to me. Sounds good to me. So let's, let's get, let's get to it. Okay. The sixth precinct has been off the chain. Mm-hmm. A lot of racial tension, a lot of racial incidents that have been going on. You outlined those problems as early as 2016. Yes. As far as I understand. Mm-hmm. Yet. The chief kind of relegated this to strictly the, the sixth precinct. Mm-hmm. So talk to me a little bit about what is going on in the 6th Precinct, this current situation, and is this something that is rampant within DPD? Well, let me say, yes, there are issues, and 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 they didn't just start when Chief Craig got here. However, he did something a little different that had not been done before. He wanted a committee— that would go in and look at the problems. Let me take you back to 2000, January 2016, when he approached me about a committee. He said, hey, I was at the 6th Precinct, right? He said, I, I, I was informed that there were some issues, racial issues. He said, in fact, I was at a roll call and two officers, white and black officer, almost got into a fight. That's when he first approached me about the idea of doing the committee. Excuse me. So at that point... We started, uh, myself and 15 other officers, we delved deeply into what was going on. We, we, you know, we, we were basically an advisory committee. We spent about eight months, uh, myself and my co-chair, we went to, uh, 33 roll calls. We talked to over 300 officers. Um, at the end of that period, we, we, uh, submitted a report to the chief that basically outlined what we saw as a problem, what the problems were, the segregation that existed in the department, the favoritism that existed in the police department, not just limited to the 6th Precinct, across the police department. So it was after that that I subsequently retired. You know, uh, in that report, we provided 23 recommendations on what should be done to address these problems. Uh, That following January, after I retired, you know, after the media got wind of the report, the chief, for whatever reason, decided that he was going to, you know, disparage the report. He called it rumor and innuendo. I think primarily because our findings found that it wasn't just at the lower level 
that there was a problem. There was a problem that existed at the mid and upper level amongst his executives. So since we named, called by name, some of his executives, I think he just didn't want that out there. And once it got out there, you know, he kind of, you know, disparaged the report. So, yes, there are problems at number six. There are problems at other precincts. Um, in the time that Chief Craig has been in place, we've had five officers go to social media and just, you know, say something disparaging about people of color. So my uh, thinking on it is you have to address it at the onset. And he didn't. He didn't address it after we gave him the report. He didn't address it after each time one of these officers said something that was negative. And now we're in a situation where you have to address it. So the result is he had to fire two police officers because of their social media activity. And so why did it take so long for the chief and and others within the department to take action? That's a good question. I, I just think they wanted to act as if it didn't exist. He called our report rumoring in innuendo. That it's been three years. So here we are three years later, and those problems still haven't gone away. And a caveat to all that is when he was at the sixth precinct and he told me he saw these two officers nearly get into a fight. Okay. One of the officers was Gary Steele. Okay. He subsequently after that promoted Gary Steele to corporal. So you're standing right there is right in front of your face and you still don't address it. Right. And you promote the officer who was the center of it. So now fast forward to now, you know, Gary Steele became a problem. It became very public. You had to get rid of him. I think by not responding, you you embolden these officers to feel like, hey, you know, I didn't get in trouble for A or B. I can continue to do what I do because I have the support of the chief and the, and the command staff. So um, it, it, you, it should never get to a point where you're forced to address something that obviously even he admitted back in 2016 was was a problem that needed to be looked at. So, you know, the onus is on him. And granted, everybody makes mistakes. So I think at this point he just need he has to acknowledge that it was a mistake not to address it and begin to address the problem. Some people say, okay, he's done that. He fired the two officers. I'm not willing to give him but that is, much. But is but that enough? It's, it's not enough. It's not enough because, you know, I, even though I'm three years retired, my phone rings every day. I get calls from officers every day about uh, racial issues popping up in this precinct or that precinct, you know, and, and the relationship some of these officers have with the community. So what I don't want to see happen is us end up in a situation like Ferguson or Baltimore, or some of these other cities where, you know, you have riots in the streets because – you have this officer who's gone out and taken his, you know, this attitude and taken it to the public. And now we got a, you know, a dead citizen or something like that. So I think it's incumbent upon the chief and the mayor because the mayor has been very quiet on this, too. You have to speak on it. You have to speak loudly on it. You have to address it. You got to put your foot on the neck and just stop it before it, you know, gets out of control. Sure. Sure. Let's get to another little piece of news. Um, last week, there was a couple um, out from outside of Pittsburgh who had a problem at the Western Hotel. Mm -hmm. um, you're talking about an interracial couple who went to see the Nas concert. Mm -hmm. uh, the wife decides to uh, go to sleep. 
husband decides to go to the bar, but he doesn't have his key, uh, goes to the front desk. His name is not on the room, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Uh, the wife, uh, um, ends up being, uh, detained by TPT. Uh, and the husband was made to stay in another hotel. I'm going to give a shout out to my boy, Ben Smith, former DPT uh, reporter at the mm -hmm. Free Press, who mm -hmm. sent me the the video um, from from her camera phone mm -hmm. um, because the chief initially said that she was drunk and they were both drunk mm -hmm. um, in viewing uh, this video with my own eyes. Uh, she was not drunk. She was very coherent. She was very clear in asking why was this going on? And so I want your thoughts on this situation and how could that have been handled differently? Because when you're a, a patron at a hotel, mm -hmm. if from what I saw, because again, when Ben first sent it to me, it was very clear to me that this occurred because they were an interracial couple in the city of Detroit. And, and this black man was not believed at the front desk. Mm -hmm. And then they called the police. And so I just want your thoughts on that. And how can these kinds of situations be avoided in the future? Well, I, I got a, a, a different perspectives on that because, you know, I, you know, you hear various things about the hotel. And I had a relative who worked there recently who had a situation with uh, uh, the security manager, you know, it seemed a little bit racial in, in tone. So, you know, I, I didn't see the video. I talked to some some people within the agency department who saw the video, who who gave me the impression that. You know, the husband and wife were just out of control, but I have not seen the video. I think if the chief, as it was said, if he, if he felt that strongly, he had evidence that they were completely out of control, then, you know, release the, release the video that you have from the officer's body cam. You know, that'll help clear up a lot of things. You know, um, you know, I understand it was supposed to go to Kim Worthy. I don't know where it is now. My gut feeling says it'll it'll probably be squashed, you know, at some point. And, and generally speaking, you know, that seems to be a problem with the chief in terms of jumping out early on some things, but not going the whole nine. If you if you come out and say they've done A and B, then release the video and, and that'll clear up a lot. We'll get the video from not only her perspective, but we'll have the video from the officer's perspective. And you can kind of go from there. Um, I don't know who the officers were, but I think from my time as a police officer, I think you have to kind of uh, weigh and balance the situation you walk into, realizing do you that you do have discretionary authority. You know, uh, the gentleman wasn't driving, so there, there's at that point there's no reason to lock him up for drunk driving. He's in a hotel. So, you know, uh, I don't know how the hotel staff handled that. I don't know if, you know, at what point they figured they needed to call the police. But um, looking at it from the outside in and, and not trying to Monday morning quarterback, I just think uh, there 
a few things that could have been done a lot different to avoid it even getting to that point. Take the gentleman back to his room. He's in the hotel. He's had a few drinks. You know, how does it get to the level where somebody's being locked up? Uh, I just I don't I don't know. But I I really want to see the video from both perspectives so I can give a, give a fuller opinion on what what really took place. Sure. Yeah. And that's fair mm-hmm. um, because. No one wants a situation to escalate mm-hmm. to that point, mm-hmm. um, particularly when you're talking about and it, it, it doesn't matter what her position is in Allegheny Co- County, Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. This is not about an elected official and giving an elected official preferential treatment. Mm-hmm. It's about the treatment of any person yeah. that is within the city of Detroit. A guest in our city. A yeah. guest in our city. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a hard enough time with our image Absolutely. as it stands. Mm-hmm. And so when these types of things occur, that ends up being another black mark mm-hmm. on Detroit. Mm-hmm. And the next time Nas is, is performing with the DSO, mm-hmm. do they decide it's not worth driving from Pittsburgh because of what happened right. at the Western Hotel the last time? Right. And that is not what anybody wants to see in this situation. Absolutely. So so let's get to a little bit of crime stuff. Um, last month, as you know, DPD announced that homicides in 2018 dropped to 261, the fewest since the 1960s when Detroit had about a million and a half, 1.5 million people, mm-hmm. right? They also said violent crime dropped 2% in 2018. But l- let's talk about the real. What are the people of Detroit saying about crime in their neighborhoods? Because we're not talking about the 7.2. Mm-hmm. We're talking about the other 300 square miles of the city of Detroit. What are they s- saying? And And I'm saying this under the backdrop that the media is only covering a fraction of the crimes that occur within Detroit on a daily basis. Absolutely. Because if we did, if the media did, all you would get is crime du jour um, mm-hmm. coming coming out of your media. And, and nobody is suggesting that that should happen. Mm-hmm. So, again, my question is, what's the real out here in the streets? You know, and I understand the 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 uh, desire that the city has and, and, and the police department have. You want to, you know, uh, it's kind of like you, you, you create the perception and the reality will follow. Well, for those of us in the neighborhood, like myself, uh, we're less trusting of what we get from the media because our eye test tells us something totally different. When you see the, the, the shootings and the things that are taking place in your neighborhood that don't ever make the news. And what I find even from social media, there are a lot more people in, in the neighborhoods who have bought scanners, you know, and they're reporting the news as it happens in their neighborhood. And, and, and so and they're keeping a greater watch on crime themselves because they're not getting it from the media and they're not getting it from the police department. So they're less trusting in terms of what they're being told. And usually what comes out in, in media as it relates to crime, it, it the focus is more on 
the downtown midtown area and and but even now in this day and time they're not as safe as they used to be so there's a real concern about crime in the neighborhood that the people downtown and the media seem to be you know I, I won't say shut off from but not as caring or concerned about you know what we deal with where I live on Joy Road and Schaefer is a lot different from what people downtown are, are living with. And add to that, the folks who are reporting it are what I call freeway Detroiters. They they drive in, they do their job, they drive out. They're, they're not affected by what we're affected by. So I, that's the real. Add to that, you know, Detroit doesn't have a million and a half people anymore. We have 500, 600,000. So to say crime is, is, is at a 50-year low is not being real honest. You know, per capita, we, we're, we're, we're still up there. And even the mayor had to admit, even though, you know, there have been some improvements, you know, we're, we're still third worst yeah. in the country. So there's a lot more to do. There's a lot that needs to be done to make me feel safe. And, you know, I'm 56. I'm at home most of the time. But, you know, for younger people who move around in the city, I, I explain to them all the time, you have to move around differently because crime is still rampant. You know, people are not buying into the hype that they're safe uh, and, and that the city is a safe place to be. We're not there yet. And there has to be a lot more done. Uh, the chief has been in place for going on six years and our, our results are marginal. And I like to say if if he were the coach of the Detroit Lions, he probably would have been fired three years ago because the, 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 these are mediocre results. So, you know, I, I think I don't know what the mayor's intentions are long term, but, you know, uh, I, I think there has to be a greater emphasis on addressing the needs of the people in the neighborhood. And crime is at the top of that list. And so you mentioned earl, uh, slightly earlier that Detroit still, despite all of the pomp and circumstances, mm-hmm. Detroit is still has the third highest. Yeah. With third highest murder rate, yeah. murder rate in yeah. the country, yeah. and so from your vantage point, what seems to be the issue or the problem? Is it a manpower issue? Is it a tactical issue? Um, what exactly is the root cause for where it, we are? It's two, three, maybe fourfold. You you start with manpower, you know, and we just we 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 you know the mayor says we're we're putting in classes in the academy on a uh, bi-monthly basis but as quickly as you put the classes in and we graduate these young people they're leaving they're leaving for other departments so basically what we've become is a training ground for other agencies who send their people to Detroit because they don't have to pay for the training and these kids graduate and they leave and go to other agencies so we're not catching up uh post bankruptcy 500 officers became immediately eligible for retirement. Since 2014, 800 police officers have retired. We're not catching up. So we, we, we have to get the manpower numbers right first. When I retired in 2016, we were running just three police cars on the midnight shift in the 7th precinct. When I came on the job, we had 11 cars running in that precinct on midnight. So we're not catching up. The city hasn't shrunk. 
You know, we're still the same square miles, you know, still the same area to be recovered. And we still have a lot of the same issues we had 20 years ago when I came on the job. So the first issue is manpower. And then you have to talk about deployment and, and structuring and how you the things you could do within the agency uh, to take a greater advantage of the people that you have. And I wonder about the leadership and if they really do have a strategy for dealing with our issues or we just putting a Band-Aid on it or holding press conferences for for marginal things that we do that are really not affecting, you know, the problem. So, you know, you, you start with manpower, you deal with employment and structuring and how you roll out your people. And the other thing is, if you want to keep people here, you got to pay them. In order to to hire and retain people, you have to pay them, and they have to get serious about that. And I don't, you know, they they're giving them incremental raises, a nickel here, a dime there. But if you really truly want to get serious about it, you have to restructure that pay scale and make people want to stay and work here. And I don't, I don't know. Post bankruptcy, you know, we lost a lot in that bankruptcy. As a city employee, I don't have health care as a retiree. I have to pay my own health care. City saved five billion dollars just by whacking our health care. So obviously there's some resources there to do other things. So, you know, now they need to start investing back into their first responders, put that money back in their pocket, get them to stay here and not go anywhere else. So people can feel safe and want to come here and live here and officers will want to work here and not go somewhere else. Okay, so I'm going to ask you to play chief for about <laughs> about 10 minutes. Oh, boy. Five, 10 minutes. Is that good enough for you? I don't know if the problems the problems can't be uh, fixed in 10 minutes. Don't, don't get it twisted. Yeah. <laughs> How, however, I, I want you to play chief for a minute because uh-huh. as someone who has worked in the department and for over 20 years and for someone like me who has observed the department over 20 years, there's been a number of uh, – tactics and techniques that have been used um, to to fight crime Mm -hmm. in the city of Detroit. Mm -hmm. So my question to you are, what were some of the things that you found were the most successful and what would you do to kind of build upon that in order to fight crime in Detroit? Well, I I don't think you can really fight it at an optimum level unless you have the boots on the ground. If you cannot hire those people, you have to find them somewhere else. I think we have to kind of clean out some of the uh, bureaus where we have officers and put those boots back in the precincts. I think we have units. Well, we do have units that don't answer police runs. They respond to other things. Uh, they're out there to do other things other than responding to police runs. That that's that has to be the first line of defense. People have to be able to respond to police runs. Uh, the the criminal element is keenly aware that when there are no police around, that's why you have the level of smash and grabs you do at night and the level of crime you going on in the, in the midnight hour because, you know, the, the, once again, the eye test. If, if I'm pookie and I realize I haven't, you know, I haven't seen a police car in three or four hours, they're not around. So I'm going to go smash this wall in this business because I got time. You know, may not see them at all during my during the whole midnight hour. So, you know, I, I you have to put the boots on the ground. You have to find a way to put people in the scout car so they can respond to the runs so they can be visible. I, I think for me, 
uh, watching uh, officers even patrol my neighborhood, there's even a difference in how they do that. We, when I came on the job, we were trained that there was a certain way you patrolled. You, you don't, you didn't stay on the main roads. You were on the side streets. Really, our supervisors told us if we catch you on the main roads, it was going to be a problem. So they wanted you in the neighborhood, you know, and you, and you cruise at a certain speed and you're always paying attention. I think largely, unfortunately, some of the rank and file are just trying to get through their shift as quickly as they can without having an issue. So I think it's training. I think it's having the boots on the ground. I think it's having a deployment strategy so that you can make optimum use of the people that you have. And we don't have enough, maybe 15, 1,600 officers total. Let's, let's go back 10 years when we maybe had 3,000, 3,500. So we have to find a way to increase that manpower, you know, uh, to a level that people will see the police. And officers will know they have the support out there, and we just don't have that right now. Okay. Much has been made about Project Greenlight and how that is playing in the reduction and or non-reduction of crime. Mm -hmm. Talk to me a little bit about that, and is it an effective tool that can be used, or is it a, or is it really supposed to be a supplemental tool um, because I believe it can, it, it, it can help, but I don't, it's not a panacea. Mm -hmm. It is mm -hmm. not the one thing that will um, reduce crime in Detroit. Although in some sort of way, that is kind of how they're pitching it. If mm -hmm. more businesses do Project Greenlight, we could solve more crime. That's kind of well. that's <laughs> kind of the issue. That's kind of what has been put out mm -hmm. into the public. And so, talk to me a little bit about that. Well, from my perspective, there's n no no camera can ever be a replacement of a body and bodies and and officers. Um, the whole green light thing to me is is kind of a throwback to the. Uh, to the days of the, the the gangsters when you had uh, you'd go tell that business if you if you pay me a little money I'll make sure you protect it. Well, you know it's kind of unfair, and I'm surprised it hasn't been challenged as being unfair, or unconstitutional. Because if I'm a business owner and I don't have the financial wherewithal to have green light, you mean to tell me my my call is not a priority, but the business across the street, his call is a priority because he has a green bubble. I think there's a level of unfairness when you have everybody in the city of Detroit, property owners, business owners, all paying taxes. And we're, we're, we're entitled to the same level of service. So I don't know, and I don't know that it ever will be challenged in the court of law, but I think there's an opportunity there for somebody at some point to say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm paying the same taxes as a business across the street. I can't afford a green light. So why is my priority different from their priority. I, I think and for those businesses who do it, that's fine. But the city has to find a way to bring about a level of fairness even within that program. And I think they can do that if they restructured it differently, if they allowed uh, those who work secondary employment to respond to the green light instead of officers who are on patrol. 
that would free up the officers who are on patrol to continue to do their regular patrol. Not only that, I have an alarm on my house. When my alarm goes off, a contract company responds first. And if it's a good alarm, they call the police. So maybe they can bring contract companies into that uh, idea, too, and have the contract companies respond if it's not something involving a gun or an assault. And then they'll be able to tell the police what the situation is and if they need to respond. So not only that, you got to also make use of your partners. Let Wayne State take care of those green lights in their area, the Midtown area. Let the transit police Worry about the green light businesses downtown. So, you know, you got to bring in other partners so that we can continue to get the level of service we deserve as taxpayers in the city of Detroit who don't have a green light and who cannot afford a green light. His business or his home should not be a priority over mine because I don't I can't afford it or I choose not to afford to have a green light. So, OK. On, on a similar note. Mayor Duggan, in his State of the City address, talked about putting cameras on streetlights. Um, and these images would be sent directly to the precinct um, to help theoretically catch folks uh, in a faster kind of time. Mm. But I want to kind of take it, and I won't debate the merits of that. Mm-hmm. Everybody wants crime fight fought mm-hmm. in a faster way. Mm-hmm. I kind of want to go in a different direction because there are several other cities that use this traffic or this, this technology for traffic stops. So my question is, is, is this where Detroit is headed? And if so, is this another tax on the poor in Detroit? It, it, it it's to me is not going to solve the problem. To be honest, as again, nothing can replace a body, a physical person who's actually out there fighting crime. I understand, and we live in a different time, and people are trying to come up with different types of technology in order to deal with the crime that we have. But nothing can replace an actual body that's on the street patrolling, you know, and looking for crime. Um, if that even that technology, you still have to have bodies to monitor the cameras. So we're going to put less bodies on the street and more people behind a monitor watching somebody actually commit a crime. I don't know how that's going to work. I mean, even with the green light locations, there have been locations where there have been crimes committed at green light locations. So um, it's not a panacea. I, I every. Every means and every avenue you, 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 you have should be brought to the table, should be looked at, see if it's a benefit or not. But again, I'm, I'm kind of old school. Nothing replaces a body, someone out there actually physically working to fight crime. You, you're not going to do that with a camera. Camera is not going to cuff anybody or, 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 or drive them to the precinct. I mean, you, it, it, it's a, it can be a help, but it can't be a replacement. But my, my, my question kind of goes to because when I drive in in New York where mm-hmm. my wife lives um, in Long Island, New York, they have the cameras on top of their streetlights. Mm-hmm. And when you run a red light, mm-hmm. they're going to send you, you a ticket. You get something in the mail, right. And so 
in the name of saying it's going to reduce crime, is that where we're going with this technology? And because of that, are we now going to put another tax on the poor? Because it's going to be Pookie and Ray Ray that's going to run the red light for the most part, right? Mm -hmm. They're already driving dirty, right? Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. so you're going to take a picture of the car running the red light. You're going to be able to see that their plate is dirty. Mm -hmm. And so what is the likelihood that in the name of crime, and and what I mean crime, I'm talking about violent crime, mm-hmm. that we're selling this as violent crime, but really at the end of the day, we're trying to reduce the number of traffic stops. It's kind of like when Jim Caldwell got fired. Mm-hmm. You know, when Caldwell got fired, it was to take us to another place, mm-hmm. not to rebuild. Right, right. And so is that what's going on here? I, I don't know. I, I, I'd have to give that some more consideration. I, I, they would argue that they're already cameras on on poles on the freeways you know so they're just extending what's already out there you know on the other side lawyers could probably argue it's a privacy issue you know um that's a good question i it it could potentially be a tax on the poor it could be viewed that way um recently we heard about them the jaywalking initiative which i have a real problem with Uh, i mean (laughs) suddenly you come up with this initiative that's really a tax on people who for most of their lives have been, for whatever reason, not walking on the sidewalk because of the neighborhood they live in or or because in some neighborhoods in Detroit, you may not have a crosswalk that they can go to to cross the street. So sure. what you're doing with the jaywalking initiative is you're recreating what occurred in New York, where it's kind of like a stop and frisk kind of thing. I, I have a reason to stop and investigate. And, and Ferguson started yeah. because a guy was. Walking in the middle of the street. Right. Let, let's be clear right. about that as it's well. It's dangerous. And I think that for those people who came up with that idea, it's, it's like, are you people tone deaf? Do you know where this could go? Do you understand where this could lead? So um, they're kind of playing with fire on that one. Okay. okay. But I, I doubt there were any uh, jaywalking uh, tickets written uh, last Sunday during the uh, uh, St. Patty's Day parade or you know, so let's let's understand what what you, what you're getting in here to, because people are paying attention. Detroit folks are paying attention to what's going on, and, and they understand we we are in a situation where we have two cities. So we could be heading down a road that's not very good. And speaking of those two cities, the biggest issue in the second city is response time. Mm-hmm. Consistently over the years, you know, folks have been saying response time is horrible. If I could use my brother as an example, they broke into his house at noon and the police didn't show up until six or seven o'clock. It might have been even nine o'clock that night. Mm -hmm. And so obviously. For the for the sake of. Fairness, DPD has said response time is down. Let me be clear. Mm-hmm. Whether folks want to believe that, that's on them. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to give DPD their, their due in saying that they say response time is down. And I know that there isn't an easy fix 
to response time. But what can be done to at least make it better and palatable to people? Because I think that's what people want. They want when they call the police Mm -hmm. for them to show up in a reasonable time. Absolutely. And reasonable in Detroit these days. Could be the next day. Right. (laughs) Yeah. You know that. I agree. Um, Once again, it's bodies, it's people, it's boots on the ground, it's officers patrolling. When before I retired, a couple of years before I retired, uh, the police department had instituted a new policy that said once we got the run to our car, if we didn't make that run within 15 minutes, it generated paper, which meant we possibly got written up. So uh, people, I have to have people understand it's not on the officers in the patrol cars because they have to respond when they get the run. Somewhere from the time that people, citizens call 911 and that officer gets the run, there's a lapse because they're not all getting the runs. Now, you can't really blame it on the, the, the 911 dispatcher or the police dispatcher because they have to give out the runs in the order they're received unless it's a priority or something like that. So what you have is a board of a list of runs that when when we came on shift at midnight, we were cleaning up runs that the afternoon shift had. So those runs are not being responded to in a timely fashion because you don't have the manpower. You don't have the manpower. And I don't think they've yet gotten serious enough about how do we address the situation of manpower. You have to find a way to address manpower so you have more bodies in the scout cars answering these runs. You know, on a typical night, me and my partners, and once again, I said we only had maybe three cars in our precinct. We were sent to other precincts to help them clean up their board. So we're we're racing around the city to these various precincts to help them clean up their board. In the meantime, you know, our board may be backing up or it may be a slow, slow night in the seventh precinct, you know, which is one of the quieter precincts. But, you know, the ninth precinct and some of the other precincts, they're real. They're hopping all the time. So they have to find a way to get the bodies on the street and keep those bodies out there. So they'll answer the runs. And right now, if you don't have the manpower you got to restructure. You got to redeploy. And I think for there's a there's a desire not to redeploy to the level that they should. And that's the question that should be asked. Why aren't you redeploying? You have people. Why right. aren't you so, redeploying? So what's the apprehension? Because people, just, people have their their favorites. They're you know, they're 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 those people within their clique. They're their pets that they don't want to give up. They don't want to give up their clerks and their. There are staffers who are officers who could go to the precinct answer runs. They don't want to give those people up. Or you have units that uh, are, are, are specialized units that do certain things that they want to keep them doing that one thing. But, you know, we need people answering runs. So those units are going to have to give up that one thing and go back to doing what they were doing when they came on the job. And that's responding to police runs. So. Well, before we get out of here, John, I want you to share with me or with us your your final thoughts and uh, how we can sort of make a dent in hmm. this issue because it's not going away. Let, mm-hmm. let's, let's be clear. We mm-hmm. all know it's not going away anytime mm-hmm. soon. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not going to wake up tomorrow morning 
and there's not going to be any crime. Mm -hmm. And so how can we put a, a dent or a major dent into crime and, and share with us your final thoughts on, on all of the issues that we talked about today? Well, you know, partnering is going to be very important because unless they can find the money to, to increase the manpower, you're going to have to partner with these other agencies. Wayne State University, Wayne County Community College, Transit, you know, in some cities, they, they partner with all of their agencies and, and it works well for them. So if you can't come up with the money to, to, to get the manpower you need, you're going to have to partner with these other, other agencies. You're going to have to have your corporate interest weigh in heavily in terms of financing and helping you get the dollars you need to bring more officers. That's the only way you're going to stem the tide. That's the only way you're really going to put a bite in the issues we have as it relates to crime. You, you got to partner with your other agencies. You got to get more bodies on the street. So I, I think, uh, you know, there has to be a call to arms for, to, by the mayor and the chief to take the problem seriously and not just gloss over it so we can create the image that Detroit is a safer place because we want investors to come. You know, you're, you're setting people up for failure. You can't do that to Miss Smith and Mr. Mr. Smith, making them think it's OK to walk to the corner store because, you know, they might get hit in the head in the process. So, you know, I understand the desire to create the perception and the reality will follow. But in the meantime, you're putting citizens at risk. You're balancing the budget on the backs of the people who still live in the city because you want to create a certain image. I think that's a bad look. So, listen, at the end of the day, if these people can't do it. We have to find somebody who can. We have to find the people who are really going to be serious. A crime has to be the number one issue. It has to be the number one issue. Second to that, finding employment for the people in the city. So they got to get serious about that. And it, like I said, it'll be six years this summer for Chief Craig. You know, we may have to start looking at moving in a different direction and getting somebody who has a strategy for dealing with crime, who can, you know, move some deck chairs around and really look at how we can solve the problem. And um, I don't know if he's the person for that job. Okay. Well, thank you, John. No problem. John Bennett, the DPD. Retiree. Retiree. <laughs> uh, police guru. Uh, founder of FireJerryO.com. Yeah, so long ago, yeah. But yeah. that was one of your claims to fame. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. And all of that good stuff. Yeah. And so I want to thank you for joining us on Beyond the Headlines. No problem. We no really problem. appreciate it. And no problem. we'll certainly invite you back when it's necessary. Mm -hmm. And uh, again, we, we really appreciate you having, being on. Thank you for inviting me. And that is it for another episode of Beyond the Headlines. I'm your host, Darren Nichols, signing off.